Welcome to This Week I Learned. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen, and every week I scour the internet to bring you some of the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies that I find. This week I learned that dogs prefer reggae music. It's long been known that listening to music relaxes the brain and the body, and for many it's a really nice way to unwind. Well, the same is true for dogs, according to a new study out of the University of Glasgow in Scotland. In the study, researchers created five different playlists for the dogs to listen to, classical, pop, Motown, reggae, and soft rock. While the dogs were listening to each playlist, the researchers measured their stress. They were looking for a few things, physical factors like heart rate and levels of a stress hormone called cortisol, but they were also looking at behavioral factors as well, like barking. Researchers noticed a few things. One was that dogs exhibited signs of personal preference when it comes to music, just like humans. But overall, music tended to have a calming effect on the dogs. And of the five genres, reggae was the most effective musical relaxant. As much as this is wonderful news for pet owners, researchers say the findings could be really helpful in animal shelters as a way to calm anxious dogs in a high-stress environment. And if reggae can calm shelter dogs, researchers suggest that they may be more likely to be adopted. In fact, the Scottish researchers have already put their plan into place and have reggae music playing in at least two shelters for those dogs. This week I learned that when plants are being attacked, they call for help with odor. Now think about it. How do plants defend themselves? We're not talking about Venus flytraps here, just your average field mustard plant. It has no nervous system, no eyes, no ears, no mouth. Really, it's a sitting duck for hungry herbivores. But according to a new study out of the Netherlands, plants emit specific smells when they are being attacked, and those smells are tailored to attract the prey that would know how to deal with that attacker. Scientists tested various herbivores on the plants. There were caterpillars, tiny bugs known as plant lice, slugs, and more, 12 in fact altogether. With each herbivore that attacked the plant, the plant emitted a specific odor, a cocktail, if you will, of chemicals. And those odors were like coded messages to nearby predators, like wasps. Wasps are parasites, always on the hunt for new hosts they can plant their eggs into. But of course, with each new potential host comes a new host of problems. But this is where the plant's odors come in. The plants are able to communicate information about the potential host to the wasp nearby. But scientists threw a wrench into the plan. Among the herbivores they had attacking the plant, they also included exotic species. So these would be similar to bugs the plants were familiar with, but different enough to confuse the situation. Either the plant would emit different smells or the wasp would be confused by the smells they were emitting. But neither of those things happened. The plant was able to determine what exactly was attacking them. Every bug had a different odor, even the surprise exotic species. And because of that, the wasps were able to deal with the new species without a hitch. 
It's a symbiotic relationship. The plant is saved by the predator and the predator finds a new host. Like any good relationship, this one is also built on good communication. This week I learned that our oldest human ancestor was a bag-like sea creature with a huge mouth and no anus. But let me back up a little bit. The line of human evolution is a long one. It stretches back hundreds of millions of years. Before primates, before mammals, before the animal kingdom, before vertebrae, we go all the way back to this incredibly broad biological category that is called the deuterostome. The deuterostome group emerged about 500 million years ago, and it quickly diversified into some familiar groups like the vertebrata, things like fish and frogs, and echinoderms, things like starfish and sea urchins. So if this were a human family tree, you'd see the deuterostome way at the tippy top and humans splintered out way, 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 way at the bottom. Of course, life did not begin with the deuterostomes, but it was long believed that the deuterostomes would be the earliest evidence of human ancestry that we'd ever find, mainly because anything more primitive would have been too small or too delicate to have survived. And that's where our bag-like sea creature comes in. It's called, and bear with me now, a saccharohitis. And its microfossils were recently discovered in central China, and scientists believe it predates all other known deuterostomes. It's a really exciting discovery because the saccharohitis represents the earliest step ever discovered on the evolutionary path that eventually led to humans. So here's what we know about our earliest ancestor. The saccharohitis was tiny, so small in fact that it lived nestled between individual grains of sand on a shallow seabed. Its body was bilaterally symmetrical, so just like humans, the left side was mirrored to the right and vice versa. It had small conical structures that may have been the predecessors to gills. It was also covered with a thin, flexible skin, and it likely had some sort of muscle structure. Researchers believed it got around by wriggling. Scientists also found absolutely no evidence that the saccharohitis had an anus. Instead, it had an incredibly primitive means of eating food and then dispensing with the resulting waste. Yes, our earliest ancestor performed both acts through one hole, its massive mouth. Yuck. This week I learned why pendulum clocks mysteriously synchronize their swings over time. A Dutch inventor by the name of Christian Huygens made the first pendulum clock in 1656. About a decade later, the inventor found himself sick and lying in bed and staring at the wall at two of his creations that were hanging there. And he noticed that no matter how the pendulums on the clocks began, within about a half an hour, they were synchronized, swinging at the exact same time, but in opposite directions. He just couldn't figure out why. And actually, it's a phenomenon that has baffled scientists for centuries until 2015 when a pair of Portuguese scientists came up with a solution. They said that pendulums transfer energy to one another through sound pulses, and the wall that the clocks are attached to is the conductor. 
They used a mathematical model, and they calculated that as the pendulums move back and forth, sound pulses could travel through the wall from clock to clock. Then they conducted their experiments. They mounted two clocks on a rail that was fixed to a wall, and they found that the changes in the speed of the pendulum swings coincided with the cycles of the sound pulses. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To read more about any of the facts I've mentioned or to check out more series from the week, including 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainers, go to theweek.com slash podcasts. And if you like what you hear, subscribe or tell a friend or leave us a rating or review on iTunes. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.